The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Your Excellency, thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Today is the Zero episode, the episode that's going to set us up for our season uh, of exploring uh, this, this topic. And a Zero episode, as is the case of for all our Origin episodes, is completely free. Well, this, as we said, the, the title of the show is The Popes Against the Modern Errors. And as with most things involving Bishop Sanborn, it's not too difficult to figure out what this is about. Uh, the Popes Against the Modern Errors, this is the Popes Against the Modern Errors, and we're going to be specifically discussing encyclicals from Gregory XVI until Pius XII. So we will be doing that in future episodes. Today's episode, we're going to start by asking what an encyclical is. And I suppose that's my very first question, Your Excellency. Can you tell us about the historical role of, role of encyclicals? How long have they been around, and uh, wh- why did they come into existence? Well, first of all, an encyclical is essentially a pastoral letter written to the bishops, patriarchs, uh, archbishops, etc., the, the high clergy, the, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, from the Pope. There were... Uh, Things like this in the early church, uh, not quite the same as what we know now, but um, uh, the the modern encyclical uh, began with Benedict the Fourteenth. Uh, it the some say that that he used the encyclical in order to try to get around the prohibition by monarchs in the 18th century of uh, papal documents making their way to bishops without the approval of the government. So that was known as regalism, where the uh, uh, monarchs, uh, Catholic monarchs, would say, well, the bishops of this country can have no direct communication with the Roman pontiff. Everything has to be sifted by the government. And some say that was his way of getting around it. But in any case, he issued the first encyclical in the 1750s, Benedict the Fourteenth, uh, and um, it's a, a way of uh, it, it's in a sense a new approach because up to that time the uh, popes would either do a bull or a brief. A brief is a letter, uh, not an encyclical letter, but a letter to a particular person or uh, a particular community or, or a particular number of bishops. Uh, and the bull was usually a law or a condemnation, 
uh, it was a very legal thing. This encyclical gives the Pope an ability to explain things. They are usually quite long, and he goes into not only the doctrine, but also the background of the doctrine, the reason why he's saying this. It is as if we're listening to the Pope as he's giving a talk, or as if he's in the front of a classroom instructing us. It's... Uh, it gives him an ability to speak his mind more than in a, a, a more uh, formal document, such as a brief or a, um, a bull. Uh, so it, um, that, that's the origin of it. And uh, so we've seen encyclicals ever since the 1750s. Well, when I think of a bull or, or those restricts or, or some sort of edict, I think of something that's you know unrolled and and pasted every, like a, a, a bulletin or a notice, you know, uh, and this is prior to the printing press where you could, you could get something out and then it could be published in multiple countries and in multiple languages. So I, I think you, you, you make a good point that it is new. It's, 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 it's I suppose the, the papacy taking advantage of a modern invention um, and, and utilizing it for good. Well, just don't forget it's 1750. So, you know, the printing press is already around it, it's just more the style. Uh, the, uh, the a bull is the, from the point of view of importance, the strongest thing that a pope can do. It comes from the word bulla, which means the uh, the stamp that is put on it, uh, uh, because the the wax seal would would be the hot wax would be put on it, and then the papal stamp, and that was the bulla, and so it translates over into English as a bull. And uh, it, so it's, it, it was something that was used usually for laws, condemnations, um, other, uh, like a bull of canonization. See, that's a law. Uh, very, very official acts of the, of the Pope. Uh, the, the, the encyclical is, from the point of view of uh, style or presentation, is less authoritative in that sense, than a bull. Uh, that is, uh, that it, it involves a great deal of explanation, which would not uh, usually appear in a bull, and it's much longer than a bull. Um, uh, Pius V's bull uh, coprimum, uh, you see, there, there's another law. Uh, th- these are um, uh, ways in which the popes up to that time would express themselves. But uh, the, the, this is something new where, where the Pope wants to uh, give explanations and also where he has to, he sees the need to communicate more with the bishops because of what's going on, uh, because of a, a rise in uh, hostility to the Catholic Church. So he, he wants to communicate more with the bishops. Well, you've alluded to the, the next point I want to cover here, Cynthia, is what you say it is something new in both in style and in, in what's being communicated. How does this fall within the, the magisterium? I, I suppose it might be helpful to our listeners for you to talk about degrees, whether it's something de fide all the way down to theological opinion, and where does encyclical fit in this spectrum? Yes, uh, the lay people usually labor under the error that an encyclical uh, the, uh, has a certain authority and everything in it has the same authority. And that's false. An encyclical 
it really has nothing to do with the authority of the doctrine in it. Uh, the Pope, when he wants to make a solemn statement, he can make it in any way he wants. He could make it at a Wednesday audience. He could say, I declare and define, and that, that's sufficient, as long as he intends to teach. So he can intend to teach authoritatively and with supreme authority in an encyclical, in a bull, in an apostolic constitution, in, in a brief. He can do it in any way he wants. He could even do it, as I said, in a speech. So what you're looking at in any papal document, as far as authority of teaching, is the language that is used by the Pope in teaching what he's uh, teaching. And as he, he will typically, if he's, uh, he will use language that binds the faithful to believe something, uh, which anathematizes the opposite view, and also where he, he'll, he will say, we declare with our apostolic authority, we define with our apostolic authority. Uh, he will oftentimes quote sacred scripture and or the fathers, so that is sacred tradition. These are all signs of, uh, of what we would call solemn magisterium, and he is free to do that in an encyclical, and it has been done in encyclicals. Most of the time, though, he is giving explanations of doctrines that are already known. So those things we call authentic magisterium, or they could be universal ordinary magisterium, and we should give a little review of that. There are three levels of magisterium. The first is what we call solemn or extraordinary uh, that is the solemn teaching of popes, such as uh, Pius XII's definition of the Assumption, in which he is very clear and says, we define this. The second is, uh, no, and it also happens when a general council defines. That's known as extraordinary magisterium, and it is, of course, infallible magisterium. Then there is something called universal ordinary magisterium, which is done, as Pope Pius XI said, every single day, when the Church teaches and preaches something. That is, when the uh, whole Church, uh, that is the uh, Pope and the bishops in union with him, teach something that pertains to faith and morals, and which is contained in Revelation, either written or handed down, that means tradition, if, he, if those conditions are fulfilled, then that is known as universal ordinary magisterium. It, too, is infallible and demands our assent of faith. So we owe the assent of faith to the, <clears throat> the solemn magisterium, also known as extraordinary magisterium, of the Pope and of a general council in union with him, and we owe the assent of faith to the universal ordinary magisterium, which is actually the more common. And uh, an example of that would be the guardian angels, for example. The, the, uh, uh, there's no solemn declaration that guardian angels exist. It is the common teaching of the Catholic Church found in catechisms, found in the, the pulpit everywhere, uh, that is, approved catechisms of bishops. It's found in the sacred liturgy. 
it, it is found in the approved dogma textbooks of seminaries. All of those things are organs of the universal ordinary magisterium. And we owe the assent of faith to those things, and they are not able to be reformed. They belong to the deposit of faith. Then the third category is something that uh, uh, theologians call authentic magisterium, and that is uh, that takes place when the Pope is explaining something and, and giving some doctrinal instruction, but it, there might, in which there is the rare case uh, that it uh, may not be promulgated and taught by the rest of the bishops, or where he does not intend to bind, where he is merely giving an explanation. And this is true and is found in all of the Church's documents, including the Council of Trent, that there is a doctrine and then there is the explanation of the doctrine. The only thing that falls under the object of faith is the actual doctrine. The explanation of the doctrine, while certainly true, does not fall under the, the, the object of supernatural faith. So, for example, when Pius IX uh, de- uh, declared the uh, solemnly the uh, the um, immaculate conception he gave in that whole that was a bull but he gave in all of that uh, a, a lot of explanation of the doctrine and of course while it is all true it does not fall under the the object of faith it's only what he actually binds the consciences of catholics to believe uh, only that is is what we call solemn magisterium uh, the Council of Trent also gave many explanations. Those things do not fall under the object of faith. Nonetheless, we are required to give to any teaching of the Pope or of a general council, even if it doesn't fall under object of faith, we are required, under pain of mortal sin, to give it what we call religious assent. That is, we assent to it interiorly, not merely keep silence about it, but we assent to it interiorly. However, it is not an irreformable assent. It is not a, an assent of faith, which by its very nature is irreformable. Those things are, strictly speaking, reformable. I don't know of any case in which they were reformed, but they are, strictly speaking, reformable. But nonetheless, we owe a, an interior religious assent to those things. If we do not, we commit a mortal sin. So, uh, that's the, uh, in a nutshell, the uh, the breakup of the ways in which the church teaches, and uh, so in an encyclical you could have all three of those things going. See, so to say, what is the authority of the encyclical? The better question is, what is the authority of the Pope when he says this, when he says this, when he says this? And by that, you, you, can tell, you can tell the authority of it from the language that he uses. So that, that's the answer well, to the question. That's the, the well, authority of encyclicals. I do think you did forget about the surprise magisterium, and that involves language <laughs> regarding rabbit and other yeah. creatures like yeah. that. It, um, I think you, you, must have, you must not have be, be, be up on your Vatican II speak. So I just wanted to throw in the surprise magisterium for you. Um, well, obviously, encyclicals, as you say, are a helpful teaching teaching tool. They aren't addressed to the laity. Uh, they are addressed to bishops. They can be addressed to the laity, obviously. There's nothing stopping them from doing it. But they're primarily, as you say, 
uh, they started as letters to, to bishops or to groups of bishops? They were never addressed to anybody but bishops, to my knowledge, until John the Twenty Third came along. And that, and then you came on to my next point, Eric. So we see this sort of anti-encyclical. As we know, Vatican II had to change everything. We had to have sure. a new mass, and later on we would have new Stations of the Cross, a new Rosary, all of those things. Well, now we have to have new encyclicals. I'd like to call these anti-encyclicals. And one of the first points is we include the laity on these letters. But when you are on the, you, I would say you're on the ground when these encyclicals started coming out. Mm-hmm. And um, did you did you notice the 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 change there, or or was it a little bit more deeply implanted? Because among some traditional Catholics, you'll hear some talk that well, you know. Some of John the Twenty Third's encyclicals were pretty good, etc. I myself have not dug into them as much. I've probably only read half of them. But um, I have two questions here. One: Is it incumbent upon uh, the, the modern traditional Catholic to read encyclicals? That's the, I sort of, the leading question. But the the follow up to that is: What of these these modern anti encyclicals? Um, should they be studied in the same way that the old encyclical should for, for rooting out error? Should they be avoided entirely? Uh, the encyclicals of the popes up to and including Pius XII should be read. Uh, they should be studied and more than read. Uh, uh, a mere reading of them would not be sufficient because they contain, a, uh, they're loaded with doctrine, and each paragraph it, it means a great deal. So it's, it's not like reading a novel or something. It's a catechism lesson uh, uh, for the modern world. And he, he, usually they are motivated by something that's happening or some error that is spreading. Uh, uh, and, and so they, they are very much, uh, uh, should be in, in everyone's, um, on everyone's reading list, and it's something that, that should be carefully studied. Uh, just don't pay attention to anything written after 1958. Um, John the 23rd, I mean, he's, he's the, uh, he's the revolutionary, and he was the one that addressed, if I, it was either he or Paul VI, but I think it was he that addressed the encyclical to men of, of goodwill, uh, and that, that's the whole idea uh, uh, you know, that that this is uh, that the the Catholic Church is going to uh, associate itself with quote unquote men of goodwill. That is, people who don't have the faith, but who are trying to better humanity by um, natural means. Uh, and uh, and sure, there's a lot of uh, very nice things in those encyclicals. Uh, just as there are a lot of very nice things in Vatican II. But the the poison is what kills you. It's not the very nice vehicle of the poison. I mean, all you need is a couple of drops of something in a glass of water to put you six feet under. So it's not the very nice thing. It's that poison which which will kill off the faith uh, if uh, if you imbibe it. So, so these people cannot be trusted. They are, uh, they are heretics. They are revolutionaries. You see the destruction that they have wrought upon the Catholic Church. Uh, they have to be studied more for, uh, for refuting them than for gaining knowledge from them. 
and you should not attempt to refute them until you uh, first have, have all the necessary knowledge to refute them. To, to clarify your point, it was Pachamenteris where we oh, have okay. this uh, address to all men of goodwill. Yes, yes. It's typical of John Twenty-Third. Uh, he was very close to the Freemasons, and, and so he sees all of these people as uh, agents of the betterment of humanity. And that's the whole spirit of Gaudium and Spes. Right, and at the time, one could look at it, and that's why I, I wanted to get a little bit of your feeling for when his when those encyclicals started to come out, was that contrast very sharp at the beginning, or was it more gradual? You, you thought, well, these just aren't, aren't great encyclicals, or, or were you able to tell right away something was wrong? No, at the time, don't forget, it's 1958, the traditional Latin Mass was ensconced in your local parish. Everything was still functioning very normally. And uh, the the atmosphere, uh, until the 1970s, was that it's impossible that the Pope could tell us anything wrong. <laughs> that was the, it was unthinkable that that the Pope would say something wrong in one of these encyclicals. And if there was anything that was ambiguous, you would necessarily give him the benefit of the doubt and say, well, it must be the translation, or something was garbled along the way, or perhaps he didn't express himself properly. Don't forget that John the Twenty-Third came on the heels of Pius XII, Pius XI, and Benedict XV, Pius X, and and so, therefore, with a, an enormous credibility, uh, 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 Pius XII so elevated the papacy in the eyes of the world that the, his successor came on with an enormous credibility. The very thought that <laughs> he would say something wrong was unthinkable. Unthinkable. So people took it in, and, and that's exactly how Vatican II and all of these horrid reforms were accepted because they were these 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 revolutionaries were acting on the credibility of of the pious the twelfth and his predecessors the uh, church that that uh, and it still is all whatever is left in the Novus Ordo is is riding on the steam of the of the pre Vatican II church it's still riding on that steam it has no steam of its own. It cannot produce any good on its own, but it, it is still running on that. Uh, it is, uh, and the, they, they still have the credibility of the pre-Vatican II Church. Uh, and that's why people accept it. If they were the Anglican Church or, or something that broke off from the Catholic hierarchy, no one would pay attention to them. But they have poisoned the whole pot through the fact that they uh, inserted themselves into the Catholic hierarchy. So uh, that, that's why, at the time, no, no one, you know, blinked an eye. Uh, I mean, there was some talk of his, um, you know, that it was a very social thing, that uh, that he uh, was a little uh, to the left in some of his ideas in Pachamenteris, for example. Uh, I remember some talk about that, but nobody ever, ever broached the idea of a lack of orthodoxy. Well, I think that's a, a good um, end for our introductory uh, episode, Your Excellency. Uh, before we go, I want to whet the appetite for our listeners for what they'll be listening to this season. So if you think about the encyclicals from, from Gregory the Sixteenth to Pius XII, all the encyclicals that we will be covering this season, 
Could you tell us about two or three of your favorite and, and, and why you find them to be really important? You are not allowed to say Fashendi because I know you're going to say that first. So we're going to exempt Okay, Fashendi so that's in a category all of its own, right? It's, it's in its own category. And, and then my challenge myself this season is, how am I going to cover Pashendi with Bishop Sanborn in one episode? It'll probably take at least four episodes. But oh, yeah, um, that, that's a that, that'll be my challenge. But if we exempt Pashendi, and you think about Gregory the Sixteenth and Pius the Twelfth, can you tell us about two or three of the most important encyclicals, call them whatever you like, most important, your favorite, uh, and why? Uh, well, uh, I would say the ones that are most important today are the ones that directly address the problem today of Vatican II. I mean, they're all important in their own way, but, uh, you know, for us, the most important. I would, uh, let's see, Mirari Vos of Gregory the Sixteenth, uh, 1830s, Quanta Cura of Pius IX, Mortalium Animos of Pius XI, and now um, I'm, I'm confined to only four, Two or three. Two or three, all right, well, there you go. But, I mean, (laughs) there's others. The ones that we really need to concentrate on are the ones that speak to the present age. Uh, That's, you know, my opinion. But, you know... Well, you're naming those three. Those have anti-documents in Vatican II in direct direct opposition to these encyclicals. Yes. Uh, I can think of others, though. (laughs) I mean, there is Pius XII, uh, mystici corporis, which directly contradicts the ecclesiology of of the uh, Vatican II, and also Humani Generis, where he he repeats it. I mean, it's an anti-Vatican II document, Humani Generis of 1950. So there's that. There's Ubi Primum of Leo the Twelfth in the 1820s, which condemns religious liberty, and which is a little-known encyclical. Uh, he's a little-known pope, but but he was very clear. Uh, it, it reads just as the the contrary of Vatican II. It's as if uh, you know, if if we get time, I'll read it to you. But you know, there's quite a few. Uh, then there's, there's Leo the Thirteenth Satis Cognitum, which also contradicts Vatican II ecclesiology. There's Saint Pius well, X. Uh, <laughs> you're up to six already, and I let, I let you go way over the limit there, but. Um, I but, think I mean, you know, that's kind of uh, not fair to say two or three. <laughs> well, I, 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 I would I say 10 that. or 15. <laughs> <laughs> I accept that. I think that uh, uh, your point is well made that the reason they're important is because they directly oppose the Vatican II documents that purport this, this that give us this new religion, that, yes. that these encyclicals stand for, for the old religion, the true religion. Yes, they do. And... And that's why they all they're all tied together, and then and the the architects of Vatican II knew that, and that's why they had to attack each of them in their own anti encyclicals and these conciliar documents. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes. For, for our listeners, if you want to follow along with the encyclicals that His Excellency and I uh, will be working on this season, we decided to make it simple. We are using an, an old book, um, which is still available on TAN's website, uh, even though it's the, the Novus Ordo TAN now, I guess. Uh, the Popes Against the Modern, the Popes Against Modern Errors, and it has all of the encyclicals, sixteen of them, uh, and they're not all encyclical. Some, some are the Syllabus of Errors, not strictly speaking encyclical, but they all those documents are in there, 
and you can get that, but you don't have to because all of the encyclicals are available for free on the internet. So if you don't need, if you don't want to get a book, you don't have to, but I would encourage you, as His Excellency said, not to read, but to study. And studying is done by printing something out. If you're, if you're an old fogey like me who uses paper and pen, um, you're going to print something out and you're going to mark it up and you're going to write notes in the margin. For you young whippersnappers, you can pull it up on your iPad and you can highlight things and, uh, and follow along. But we'll be covering all of the documents in that book. So if you want to use that as a guide, as a preview to what we'll be covering this season, The Popes Against the Modern Errors, it's edited um, by someone named Anthony Mioni. Uh, you're the, uh, I think that's it for our introduction, introductory show. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners uh, before, we, um, before we end our episode? No, just that that is a very good book. Uh, that, uh, but there are other encyclicals, as I mentioned, that uh, could belong in it and should belong in it. Uh, but, uh, um, but that's certainly a good place to start. Uh, I would make my own list, um, uh, and uh, but uh, uh, I think little by little we can go through these encyclicals, even perhaps ones that are not in that book, and uh, I will help people to study them and, and look at them and, and give them background on it and, and why they're important. And we're, we're looking forward to that. And uh, His Excellency talked about Mirari Vos. You tune in to Episode 1. That's the uh, encyclical we'll be covering. So, Your Excellency, thanks so much for your time. We look forward to seeing you uh, for Episode 1, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. We want to remind you that you have been listening to Popes Against the Modern Errors, Episode 0 on the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.org. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.